From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Historically, we have come to understand the importance of nutrition and diet as it relates to better health outcomes. Research shows that eating healthy foods can prevent and reverse disease. For years, how nutrition related to reproductive success and fertility went widely understudied. Now, Dr. Jorge Chavarro's research covers the impact of nutrition on fertility and the successful outcomes of infertility treatment technologies. Jorge Chavarro is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Associate Professor of Nutrition and Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Chavarro is also the Principal Investigator of Nurses Health Study 3. Dr. Chavarro, welcome to Think Research. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So one of the areas you study um, is nutrition and its impact on fertility. Um, when you first started doing research, though, you were initially interested in nutrition and cancer. How did you change your focus? That's correct. So when, when I first started my uh, research training, um, the idea was that I uh, was going to be doing uh, cancer prevention research and trying to understand how nutrition might impact cancer. But it turned out that apparently I'm not that good at coming up with original ideas as it relates to cancer or at least not at, at, at that moment. My doctoral studies advisors uh, remembered that as a medical student, I had uh, been a research assistant in a couple of uh, studies related to fertility. So he suggested that uh, maybe it would be a good idea to take a look at nutrition and other lifestyle factors related to fertility, which at the moment I thought was a terrible idea but uh, something that would be good to get me through the PhD and uh, then allow me to refocus into something that I thought more interesting, but it ended up being my entire career. So uh, nearly uh, like more than 15 years later, I'm still doing the same. So I guess it, it was a very good idea, not a terrible idea as I originally thought. And you said you thought it was a terrible idea. Was it just because you hadn't thought about that field before? It wasn't something you were interested in? Well, it it was um, it wasn't something I had thought about before. So, and um, what I, I there was some literature at the time suggesting uh, that uh, body weight was going to be important, right? So, so we knew that underweight people, uh, underweight women, had a difficult time getting pregnant. That was well established at the time, and there was emerging literature showing that obesity was equally important. But uh, I didn't think at the time, and there wasn't much in the literature at all, um, definitely not in the medical literature, uh, suggesting that diet itself, that the composition of diet beyond uh, energy balance would make any difference. So what I thought was that I was going to end up writing a, a series of null papers saying, no, there's nothing here, there's nothing here, there's nothing here, and kind of restating the obvious, but it turned out not to be the case. Um, and it was only when I started reading more into the literature on, uh, on the, a few specific conditions, especially 
on uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, which is one of the most common causes of infertility as it relates to an ovulation specifically, that I started realizing that maybe there was something there that uh, given what was known at the time about PCOS and about the role of insulin sensitivity on PCOS, that uh, if, if, if insulin sensitivity was so important to PCOS, uh, then maybe risk factors for diabetes, which is also very, very, where insulin resistance is also very important, um, might overlap with risk factors for PCOS and with infertility related to an ovulation in women who were PCOS or who had a phenotype that looked PCOS but failed to meet uh, the diagnostic criteria. So that was the, the initial lead. And then trying to, so, so I said, okay, maybe there's something there. Maybe we can go kind of down the diabetes route and see if there's some overlap between diabetes risk factors and uh, risk factors for diabetes and risk factors for infertility, at least as it relates to an ovulation. And the other thing was I ended up uh, scouring uh, PubMed uh, everywhere. I, uh, so this was back before you could get uh, full of, uh, full text PubMed on your office. So I actually had to spend quite a bit of time in the dungeons of country library looking for uh, old, old papers. Um, and it turned out that there had been a, a few case reports here and there suggesting that some micronutrient deficiencies might be important for fertility, but it never made it past uh, case reports. Uh, so there was really nothing systematic on these uh, nutrient deficiencies, but it was curious that the same nutrient deficiencies came kept creeping up over and over again in the same case reports. And then I ended up uh, discovering that even though there was not much of a medical literature on nutrition fertility, there was a lot of veterinary literature on nutrition fertility, uh, especially in pigs and in cows, uh, because it turns out that there's, it is very, very important to control fertility in, in animals that are commercially of, of commercial interest. Uh, where it makes a big difference if you have uh, a cow that has uh, four calves or three calves, that that's a lot of money. And that that one calf difference makes a lot of of of, of economic difference. Uh, so there's there was the time a huge huge literature on on nutrition and uh, reproduction in animals and animal reproduction. And I think still today we know more about nutrition and animal reproduction than we know about nutrition and human reproduction. What was some of the other early research that you did that kind of led you to think that this might be a viable research path? Right. So, son, so it was really a big bet on on polycystic ovary syndrome. So we uh, we uh, the the data that we had available at the moment was data from a large prospective cohort study, the Nurses Health Study Two, that at the time had been filed for by for a couple of decades. And we had uh, very detailed information on women's diet, but also on, on whether or not they had tried to become pregnant and any pregnancies they may have had during the, during the two decades of active follow-up. Um, and for the women who had tried and successfully to become pregnant, we had information on whether or not they had, under, they, they had sought medical uh, diagnosis and treatment and not surprisingly, the most common diagnosis, self-report diagnosis of, of infertility among these women was ovulatory disorder. Um, most of which we know is, um, or at least at the time, it, it was polycystic ovary syndrome. So 
the, obviously there are other uh, underlying causes of infertility, right? So male factor infertility is very common, but we knew that it didn't make any sense to look at male factor infertility as an outcome when all we had was data from the women. Um, another uh, common uh, underlying cause of infertility is tubal disease, obstructed, obstru obstructed tubes. But again, we there wasn't any any reason to believe that diet had anything to do with tubal disease, where there's a, a, a well-documented pathology involving uh, chronic inflammation, usually uh, secondary to uh, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease and sexually transmitted infections. So of, of the things that we had data on, the one that made most sense and also happened to be the most common was infertility due to ovulation disorders. The interesting thing was uh, that we actually ended up finding quite a bit of, of, of uh, nutritional factors associated to infertility uh, related to ovulation disorder. So it turns out that there was indeed quite a bit of overlap between what we knew were uh, nutritional factors that were important for diabetes and nutritional factors that we found associated to infertility due to ovulation disorder. So, uh, and that included... Um, the amount and type of carbohydrates that go into diet that that's roughly that that overlapped quite well. We also found that um, uh, associations with the, with the types of fat that you consume. So what we found overlapped quite well with what was known for diabetes, and same thing for different types of protein sources that also overlapped quite well with diabetes. Um, other things that we that that overlapped were uh, findings. Uh, so at the time, uh, there was a growing literature that uh, iron uh, intake and iron stores would be uh, could be a risk factor for diabetes. And we all and um, we didn't see the, that. We actually ended up seeing the opposite that iron appeared to be protective. But that actually aligned with some of the case reports of micronutrient deficiencies. Um, uh, and the other part that, that kind of followed up on these uh, case reports that I mentioned earlier was an association with, that we found with uh, nutrients involved in the one carbon metabolism, mostly folic acid, but also to a lower extent, B12. And the, the, the question then was, well, we see all these things associated with infertility due to ovulation disorders, but uh, to what extent this may also apply to other causes of infertility? Right, that, that are common. And to what extent this may also apply to couples who are undergoing infertility treatment, regardless of their diagnosis. And that's kind of where our research expanded from that point. Hmm. And so, so now, I mean, so could you bring that up to kind of the present day and where your research is focused on with, sure. um, with infertility nutrition? Right. So, so the, the, the first big expansion had to do with uh, trying to look at uh, relation between diet and, and semen quality parameters as proxies for male factor infertility and with male factor infertility itself. And we do see quite a bit of overlap in risk factors. All of this work was done in collaboration with, uh, uh, with colleagues at the Mass General Hospital Fertility Center. Uh, where we were also able to look not only at the male partners to look at semen quality, but also at the couples as they were cycling through infertility treatments um, to see what, uh, to what extent pre-treatment pre diet might relate to 
outcomes of infertility treatment with assisted reproductive technologies. So the, the big picture is diets that are generally healthy. So the type of diets that you would recommend for the prevention of heart disease or that you would prevent for, uh, the, for prevention of premature mortality, there's a substantial overlap between those type of diets and the diets that we see associated with better fertility, whether that is in the setting of assisted reproduction or whether that refers exclusively to males or whether that refers exclusively to females um, as it relates to anovulation or, um, or ovarian reserve measures. So there are a few things that appear to be particularly important to males. So for example, for males, the intake of omega-3 fatty acids appears to be especially important, much more so than for women, as far as we can tell. And, uh, and there are a few things that appear to be a lot more important for women than there are for men. So one of them is this, uh, the one carbon metabolism. So the metabolism of folic acid and the nutrients involved in that metabolic pathway appear to be very, very important for, uh, for ovulation and for early embryo survival. Early embryo survival really relates to uh, maternal nutrition and the nutritional status of, of the mom at the time of ovulation. So, so that, that particular part is super, appears to be super, super important for females, but not necessarily for men, um, although it's not unimportant. And the omega-3 fatty acid part appears to be super, super important for men, not that, it's not, not that it is unimportant for women. I thought it was interesting when we talked previously, you mentioned how you kind of gave us a really nice history of contraception and how that has affected people's thinking around infertility. And I th was wondering if you could touch on that and why studying nutrition and fertility is so important. Right. So I, I think that, that um, fertility in general usually gets, uh, gets relegated to, to, um, to kind of a niche area that's, um, that doesn't have that much of a, of a public health relevance, right? So it's definitely clinically relevant for, for addressing the, the reproductive needs of people. So I, I, I like the way um, that uh, a colleague uh, once described it at, uh, at an infertility meeting. I was like, well, one of the problems is that people think of infertility as the plastic surgery of gynecology, uh, right? So it's the, the, one of these things that's nice, but maybe not necessary. Um, so, um, so that's, that is a, a common perception, but I think that once you start thinking about why should we care about fertility, uh, from a, a, a big picture perspective, you have to go back and start thinking about, um, what are becoming the most common, uh, the most common cause of infertility in our society today, right? Um, so increasingly, most, uh, the most common cause of infertility um, in, in the United States is, uh, is women receiving a diagnosis of diminished ovarian reserve, meaning that, the, that they, uh, their ovarian reserve is, not, is, is low and they are unable to get pregnant because of a lower ovarian reserve, which we know goes down with age. Um, and the, the typical story is of a, of a couple that has, uh, of a professional couple 
that uh, they've gone through college, they've gone through graduate school, they've put a lot of time and effort into their professional careers at somewhere in their uh, uh, 30s or uh, mid, mid 30s or so, they said, hey, maybe we should have children and they figure out that they can't. And, and the reason this story is so common is because, um, is, is because with the introduction of effective contraception in, uh, in the second half of the, of the 20th century, um, along with in improvements in child mortality rate that had been going on throughout the 20th century, we really changed the cultural expectations of uh, women's lives, right? So it, it was no longer the case that uh, women uh, couldn't necessarily plan long-term for their education and their professional development because at any moment they might become pregnant and then may have to switch responsibilities to a family and, and, uh, and uh, uh, child caretaking re responsibilities, it really allowed entire generations of women to say, no, this is, uh, I, I can decide whether or not to have children. And if I wanna have children, uh, this is when I'm gonna have children. And over time, slowly since the 1960s, what, that, what this has resulted is in a slow shift in when couples decide that they wanna have children for the first time. And what we're facing right now is that in, in, in uh, throughout uh, the Western world, especially in North America, uh, many parts of, of East Asia and Western Europe, what we're encountering is that entire populations of, of people are deciding to delay childbearing into their mid-30s when ovarian reserve starts going down very, very dramatically. So we find ourselves really in, in a conflict between the between basic ovarian biology, right? There's that that's if that's how human ovaries work. And um, and the societal expectations for um, uh, uh, for reproductive choices that are in place because of contraception. Now, I don't think anybody wants to go back to a world without effective contraception to shift back the age distribution of when people try to get pregnant. So I think that, that we need to figure out what are gonna be the population-wide and society-wide solutions that allow women to continue having this uh, uh, educational and professional personal development that has, uh, that, has uh, um, that uh, effective contraception has allowed without having to pay the penalty of greater uh, risk of infertility and greater difficulties conceiving and having to uh, rethink or completely abandon their reproductive uh, choices. Mm. And so you think that changes in nutrition could help people, could help women overcome some of that difficulty? Right. So, yeah, so that's that's the underlying uh, impetus of our research, right? So I think that there's definitely a role for nutrition and lifestyle factors in preventing some types of infertility, many of them related to ovulation disorders. Not only to that, not, not only to that, but, but, uh, but I do think that one of the many things that have been underlooked in infertility is the fact that is primary prevention, right? So almost exclusively, almost all the attention on infertility is exclusively on treatment. And uh, with the exception of 
probably thinking about primary prevention of infertility as it relates to prevention of tubal disease by uh, secondary to prevention of uh, sexually transmitted infections. But very few people have put serious thought on what the primary prevention for infertility might look like, similar to, um, so I, I think it's, it's similar to the transition on thinking about heart disease as something that you treat from something that you can prevent. And if it happens, then you treat it, right? So that transition happened a few decades ago. That transition hasn't happened for infertility and, and for other, uh, and, and for thinking about human reproduction in general. And I think it's important that we, that we think about that. Um, and second, inevitably, um, just like is the case for heart disease, you can prevent, you, you may be able to prevent some, some cases of infertility, but you're not going to be able to prevent all of them. Um, and it is equally important to know that when people do require treatment, that we have all the arsenal uh, at, at our disposal to improve uh, treatment outcomes. And that involves uh, not only improving technology, but on my end of, of research, what might be some lifestyle factors and nutritional factors that could serve as adjuvants to uh, whatever treatment is, whatever treatment technologies happen to be available at any one time to improve uh, success rates. So that's, and, and in both areas, in both in identifying what might be things that could help prevent infertility to begin with, and second, in identifying things that what might be, what might make infertility treatment more successful uh, we we have found that that nutrition can play an important role. I wanted to ask you about the health, nurses health study three that you're the principal principal investigator for. Um, you mentioned right. earlier that you took a lot of when you were doing research, you took a lot of data from nurses health study two. I think most people listening know about the nurses health study, but if you could give a little bit of background and. Tell us about it and why it's important and what you're hoping to learn. Right. So, so like you said, so like, like the name implies, uh, Nurses Health, Health Study 3 is the third iteration of Nurses Health Study. So the, the original Nurses Health Study was started in 1976. And um, the, the reason this study was funded was because at the time, it wasn't clear whether or not uh, oral contraceptives, which had been recently introduced into, into the US market broadly, right? So this is about only a decade after oral contraceptives are widely available. And back then you, you could only get prescriptions if you're a married woman and so forth, right? So, and, but at the time um, it, was, it was suspected, but it wasn't clear whether oral contraceptives were risk factors for breast cancer. That was the, that was the big question. That was why the study was funded. Um, it, it was essentially a breast cancer study. Uh, then there was the, the Nurses Health Study 2, um, uh, which started in 1989. Again, it was mostly a study driven by trying to identify uh, risk factors for breast cancer. So since 1976, there was the, the data on oral contraceptives and breast cancer had been consolidating, but now you have an entire different generation who had access to, or, to hormonal contraception earlier in their life. Uh, so it wasn't clear that what, what was learned from the nurses health study could apply to an entire new generation of women who, may, who had been exposed to oral contraceptives earlier. Right? So that was how those, started, how, how those two started, uh, studies started. By the time I got involved, they had, they had morphed into multi-purpose research studies that allowed 
uh, investigators to address a large number of hypotheses. Throughout the years, they have mostly served as uh, studies of cancer, but they have supported research on a wide variety of, of research areas. So for example, uh, some of the first human data showing that trans fats uh, were important risk factors for cardiovascular disease came from the nurses' health studies. So uh, by, the, by the time I got involved, um, and there was the possibility of thinking of a third nurses' health study, there were, there were two, uh, two lines of interest. One was, again, the breast cancer investigators who by that time were thinking, uh, there was a lot of interest on earlier life exposures. So, so uh, it, it became increasingly important and increasingly clear that whatever happens to uh, that exposures, environmental and nutritional other types of exposures before a woman's first uh, pregnancy are, increased, are super, super important for breast cancer risk. Um, and now again, we have a completely new generation of women who are delaying childbearing and therefore have a much longer period of time uh, to accumulate these exposures that might be important for breast cancer many decades down the line. And at the same time, um, at, uh, my personal interest in reproduction uh, and on fertility, we realized that even though it, the nurses health study two had been quite useful for studying fertility and starting some pregnancy related events, the study wasn't really designed to address these things. So I wanted to have an opportunity to have a new study where we could really think of, of how to best capture reproductive outcomes. And that's what we have been doing uh, in nurses health study three. So currently we have uh, our, our two major sources of funding are uh, grants from the uh, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute uh, that uh, where we receive funding to identify, um, uh, to serve as, as research infrastructure for work uh, aimed at identifying how reproductive events and uh, so the reproductive mile, uh, milestones as well as intergenerational uh, exposures um, and, uh, and exposures that vary throughout a woman's life course uh, can have an impact on cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular disease risk factors. So it's more of a longer term perspective. And from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, which is interest, which, uh, from which we receive infrastructure funding to uh, look to identify environmental determinants of uh, a wide variety of, of health outcomes, primarily concentrating on female reproductive health. And um, where, what stage are you at with the study now, and how long is it going to run? Um, so, so it's a long, we, we it's a very a, long term study, right? Right, right. So, for example, so nurses' health study one that's starting in 1976 is still going. Mm. Wow. So, if if uh, participants who are alive are still being followed up, same thing with nurses' health study two. Um, so with Nurses Health Study 3, we, we made a couple of, of different decisions that Nurses 1 and Nurses 2, so Nurses 1 and Nurses 2 were essentially enrolled in a single goal uh, of, okay, we're going to send invitation letters to everybody, and whoever responds is part of the cohort. With Nurses 3, we have decided to keep it as an open cohort, meaning that we're letting anybody enrolled at any time, and we just make sure, make sure to, what we have created is, essentially a, a, a participant-centered study timeline where the questionnaires that you see at any one time depend on when did you join the study and uh, 
what's and also depending on specific life circumstances right to be able to capture pregnancies in a lot of detail to be able to capture specific life events in in a lot of detail um and uh so so far we've recruited uh, uh close to 50,000 women and um any any nurse in the United States or Canada who's interested in joining is more than welcome to go so that's uh, uh I'll put the 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 uh, free advertisement there. So it, all, all they need to do is go to www.nhs3.org and it'll have instructions on how to join the study. So we, we at the moment, we do not have any plans to cap enrollment at any point. So however many nurses want to join, they're more than welcome to join the study. And as far as until when are we going to continue, I would say that as long as there's funding, as long as NIH is interested in funding our work, we'll continue working on, on this study. Um, and if if the original nurses health study uh, are any indication, uh, I think we'll be do, uh, following these women for the next few decades. Great. Well, Dr. Chavara, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure uh, being here. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.